Welcome to Growing in Grace with Pastor Victor Morrison. This is a ministry of First Baptist Church located at 1700 Milam Street, Columbus, Texas. We are praying that God will bless you as you listen to this message. If you would like additional information on worship times and ministries at FBC Columbus, you can find out more at our website, fbccolumbustx.org. And now, take your copy of God's Timeless Word as Pastor Victor gives today's message. Welcome back to Growing in Grace. So glad you've joined us today. You know, here it's Christmas, so I'm excited to uh, share today a little bit about the majesty of Christmas. Have you ever thought about how majestic Christmas is? I believe that the majesty of Christmas is none other than the majesty of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, Christmas cards, greeting cards have been around since 1843. Sir Henry Cole over in England uh, must have been the very first one to write a Christmas card, but I do believe that if you go all the way back into the Old Testament, you'll find that there are lots of greetings uh, that were trying to tell people, get ready, because something really wonderful and really majestic is heading your way, referring to the Savior, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Just a few things about uh, Micah. In the Old Testament, if you're not familiar with him, we're going to look at Micah 5, verses 1 through 5. But the Old Testament prophet Micah dates his ministry in chapter 1, verse 1. He dates it by referring to three kings of Judah that he was preaching during their reigns, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Those reigns would span from 750 B.C. to 686 B.C., so roughly about 64 years or so. But what I think is really cool to remember is what I'm about to read. And when we're talking about Micah, this is no fable. This is real life. This is history. And that's what he was trying to assure us of. He was anchoring it in the history of mankind. You know, during the reign of those three kings, the economy of Judah was strong. I mean, it was affluent. There were a lot of uh, people that were enjoying material prosperity. But Micah the prophet could see beyond all of the glitter and the glitz, and he could see that beneath all of those things, there was some corruption and bribery. It was in the priesthood. It was in the judges. It was in lawmakers. It was everywhere. But for Micah, there was another threat. It was the greatest threat, the aggressor, the Assyrians. They were on the rise. And about that time, uh, Samaria fell in 722 BC, and the Assyrians began to move south into uh, Judah, and they sacked about 46 Judean towns. So it was really uh, a very scary time if you had been alive during those days. But what's really interesting is God gave Micah incredible foresight into the future to where he also not only addressed the Assyrians, but he talked about the Babylonians. Now, they would not come for another 100 to 150 years later. In 586 BC, uh, the city of Jerusalem was, was sacked and uh, the people there were taken into exile. And so where we're going to pick it up in Micah chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, the, the context 
even though it's not during the days of Micah, he's looking down the corridors into the future through the help of the Holy Spirit. And he's describing a period of darkness and gloom that will come upon the people of Jerusalem during the Babylonian siege. And so it all seemed hopeless and it all seemed helpless. You'll feel that, you'll hear that when I read Micah chapter five, verse one. But what I wanna sort of give you a heads up about before I read it is notice what happens when the prophet gets to verse two. He says, but you, and all of a sudden, things change from the bitter humiliation of the Babylonian assault and siege and so forth to a blessed hope. It's like the arrival of the Messiah. It's going to happen in a small town called Bethlehem, but that one event, that one person is going to change everything. How would you describe the greatness of the Son of God, Jesus Christ? Well, I would describe him as majestic. You know, when I think of majestic, I think of either royalty or I think of splendor, the splendor of something that is so incredibly beautiful and great. And so I want you to think about the the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll even hear that word mentioned in the text that I'm about to read. Let me read through this. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Isn't that a great passage of scripture. I mean, just think, this is written so far in advance, 700 years before Jesus was born in the manger. This is what God the Father was inspiring one of the prophets by his Holy Spirit to write. He's just telling us about the majesty of the one who is coming. So I want us to look at him closely through the lens of these verses. And let me just remind you of the majesty of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. First, I want you to notice in verse two, the majesty of his position. You know, Christmas gatherings and Christmas preparations, they can feel shallow and even can be stressful if we overlook the depth and the joy of the majesty of Christ's position. Let me read it to you again from verse two, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient times. Wow, majesty. 
Let's look at the majesty of Jesus in terms of his position. I feel like that the prophet anchors Christ's position in three different locations. First, he anchors Christ's position in humanity. Did you pick up on the fact that he's going to be born in a real place, Bethlehem? You could even go to Israel and see that place today. But do you know what Bethlehem means? It means house of bread. It's so incredible that rather than picking Jerusalem or Rome or Athens or one of the great cities of that time period, he picks this small little place, Bethlehem. And he says, this is where I'm going to send the Savior of the world. So that's why Jesus oftentimes, I think, referred to himself not as the Son of God, even though he was, but as the Son of Man. That was his favorite title for himself. No wonder the Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians 2 that he laid aside all of those glorious things that he had enjoyed with the Father from eternity past. He laid all that aside and took on the form of man. That's incredible when we think about it, that he takes the position of, I want to come among the people of this world. But also, I think the prophet anticipates Christ's position from another angle, the angle of royalty. Notice that he does say he's going to be a ruler. Wow. You know, he says, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel. You see, his destiny would go way beyond childhood, way beyond the cross. His destiny is moving in one direction, a crown. His destiny is moving toward a reign. So I cannot wait until the day when Jesus reigns on the face of this earth. It's going to be great, but that's just part of his position. That's who he is. The Bible describes him as the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. He's royalty. He's humanity, he's royalty, but also I think Micah the prophet announces it so clear no one can miss it. His position also is with regard to his deity, his deity. Did you figure out what was meant with these words at the end of verse two? Whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. There was one time I recall in John's gospel When John recorded a conversation Jesus was having with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they were rejecting him. But at one point, Jesus, uh, they're telling him, oh, listen, uh, you know, we're trying to follow Abraham. And Jesus says to them something very striking. He says, before Abraham was, I am. Can you imagine what he's saying is, I existed before Abraham. This is just incredible for those guys. Well, in addition to considering his position and his crown and all of these different wonderful things, I think his majesty can also be seen in Christ's character. When you think about the character of God, you would be spot on to say, well, he's gracious, he's merciful, he's faithful, he's good. He's holy, he's righteous, he's kind, he's compassionate, he's truthful, he's just. All of those things are right. You would be exactly right. 
But when I read verse 3, I thought about one characteristic of God, one attribute and quality that takes my breath away. How about this? How about the majesty of Christ's patience, the patience of God? I think that's why he tells Moses in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, that he's slow to anger. Are you glad that God is slow to anger? Are you glad that God is patient with us? I know I am. I'm so thankful. As a matter of fact, even when I was living in rebellion, God was still showing his his patience toward me, giving me time to come around and see the truth. That's why even though there have been skeptics like, well, let's say Robert Ingersoll, one day he was speaking very proudly and arrogantly to his students. And he said, you know what? If there really is a God, I'm going to challenge him right now because I don't believe there is a God. So if there is a God, I challenge him to kill me in the next five minutes. So he and the class sit there. I'm sure the class was so worried for their professor, but they just sit there for five minutes. And at the end of the five minutes, he says to the class, just like I thought, there is no God. But what he underestimated is God's character is patient. He's patient with us. And so even though he was taunting this uh, wonderful God to kill him, you know, within five minutes, God had mercy on that man and he didn't kill him. Something very opposite of that happened one time when they were challenging the evangelist D.L. Moody. And so, you know, D.L. Moody was being challenged by a man who said to him, look, if God is so real and he's so powerful, I challenge him right down to knock me to the ground. At that point, D.L. Moody just pushed him down and he fell to the ground. And he says, why did you do that? And D.L. Moody said, I'm just a man. If I can knock you to the ground, it's no big deal for God to knock you to the ground. I don't think he's even got time for that. So anyway, I'm not suggesting that we go out and do that. But what I am reminding us of is the patience of God. You know, John MacArthur and other Bible scholars tell us that verse three refers to the time that we're living in right now. You know, many of the Jewish people, they reject Christ. They're not willing to follow him right now. But there's gonna come a day when they will turn to him in repentance and faith. But verse three says, therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth, and then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. You see, now is the times of the Gentiles. Now is the time when God has his arms wide open to every one of us on the face of this planet. Every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation, every race, every strata of, of the economy. He loves you. He wants you to come to him. And so God is waiting. But think about the patience of God as it says that he was having to give them up, as it were, the children of Israel to wait. Do you try to protect your child from any kind of consequence of bad behavior? Well, it must be hard for God to be patient, to give them time. And so that's what I think he's referring to. Therefore, he will give them up. But then notice it says how not only is his patience giving release, 
but his patience is also holding back and restraining until the time. So God's giving us time to repent and to turn toward him. He knows that someday that others will come to know the Lord. And so that's why he is so patient. You know, that's why in Second uh, Peter chapter 3, it even refers to uh, the Lord's patience when it says, there's going to be scoffers who will say, well, if God's so real, why doesn't, he, why doesn't he just come back right now? The reason is he's giving us time to put our faith and trust in Christ. That's just the majesty of his patience. But how about we go secondly from the majesty of his patience and position to the majesty of his power? You see, this prophecy of Christ's birth was given 700 years before he was born. Wise men saw his star in Matthew 2, uh, chapter 2 and verse 2. And so whenever they come to Jerusalem, they say, where is he? And so they had to do a search and they said, in uh, Matthew 2, 6, some of those uh, scribes and priests and so forth, they said, well, Micah chapter 5, verse 2 says, he's going to be born, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. And then when they headed toward Bethlehem, suddenly they saw him. What is it that really takes your breath away in terms of power? <clears throat> One day I was watching a television show called the World's Strongest Man Competition. I saw men pick up these 220 to 350 pound stones. They were called the Atlas Stones. There were five of them. And they had to take them from one location to another location. And I thought, I wouldn't even be able to budget. Does that impress you when you see people pick something that heavy up? How about Colossians 1.16, where it says that by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth. It's astonishing. Not when you consider how much power God has. I don't think we even have a measurement for that, but for the purpose of his power. That's what I'm really in awe of in verse 4. It says, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. So what is God going to use his strength to do? Well, it says that he's going to stand and he's going to shepherd. Two things. I think that God uses his power in a majestic way to serve, and he uses his power in a majestic way to shepherd. You know, Jesus said he didn't come to serve but to be, he didn't come to be served, but to serve. And so I'm thinking, no wonder in John 13, verses three through five, when he's at the last supper with his disciples, he takes a towel and he gets up and he washes the feet of his disciples. This is the son of God. This is someone incredibly powerful. Yet he harnessed that power and says, I'm gonna use my power to demonstrate how men should serve one another. But then also he says, in the strength of the Lord, he doesn't just stand and serve, you know, because royalty, usually they're seated, right? They're not up standing and uh, serving, but Jesus was, but also he was going to use his strength to shepherd. You know, shepherds do a lot of things, but two things stand out to me that Jesus said he was going to do, lead and feed. You know, shepherds lead and they feed. John 10 Verses three and four, Jesus said he goes before his sheep. Then in John 10, nine, it says that he also feeds his sheep. 
He takes them to the good pastures. So I'm just so impressed at the majesty of the Lord's power. I'm so impressed at the majesty of his patience, at the majesty of his position. But also verse four goes on to talk about security. They shall dwell secure for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. You know, are you looking for eternal security? Are you looking for security that God will watch over you for the rest of your life, but also in eternity? I think that's the majesty of his protection. I'm so glad that Christ, his atonement is so perfect that he saves forever those who turn to him. You know, in John 10, Jesus even said, no one can pluck us out of his hand. And so forever, the Lord says, I will say that you're mine and that your sins are forgiven forever. I'm so thankful for the protection that he gives to all of his children. But let me close with one more thing. I think the Christmas season is also known for peace, don't you? The majesty of his peace also takes my breath away. You know, the angels told the shepherds, peace on earth. In Isaiah 9, 6, Isaiah was given insight into the Christmas season, the birth of Christ. And you know what he called Jesus? The Prince of Peace. So I'm just thinking of New Testament principles that find their fulfillment in Christ. And so let me share those with you briefly before we close. You know, the majesty of his peace is found in Romans 5, 1, whenever it says that we who at one time we were at enmity with God. We were separated from God. We were enemies to God. But in Romans 5, 1, it says that through Christ, we can have peace with God, speaking about the reconciliation that can happen. So I want you to know that through Christ, through faith in Christ, there's spiritual peace with God that's possible for you, no matter what you've done against him the Lord can forgive you and help you to be reconciled to him if you will place your faith in Christ. But how about this? Philippians 4 verses 6 and 7 speaks about a whole nother kind of peace. I call it internal peace. You know, if we will turn over our fears and our worries to Christ, I think we'll also find another kind of peace that surpasses all comprehension. You might not even be able to figure it out, but if you'll do what God says and say, you know what, Lord, I'm not going to worry. I'm not going to be fearful about these things in my life. I'm going to trust you with this. I'm going to pray about this. Then God promises, I will guard your heart and your mind with peace. You know, Romans 14, 19 speaks about relational peace with other people. I think that God, more than anyone else in this whole world, this whole universe, more than anyone else, the Lord Jesus Christ can help us to have a shot at being at peace with other people. But God knows, Romans 14, 19 says, as much as it depends on you, be at peace with others. I think that he can help us to forgive. You know, uh, part of my DNA is I'm, I have a little bit of Cherokee uh, Native American Indian blood in me. And so it's significant to me that phrase, bury the hatchet. You know, the Lord, he forgives us of our sins 
so he can help us bury the hatchet and forgive those that are around us who have hurt us, perhaps even deeply. But then there's also an incredible racial peace that I think comes through Jesus Christ. If there was any groups that didn't get along, it was at that time between Jew and Gentile. If you weren't a Jew, you were a Gentile, and Jews and Gentiles just did not mix at that time. But Ephesians 2, 13 through 18, introduces us to something that happens whenever people anywhere in the world come to know Christ. They begin to be fused together. They're melded together and brought together in Christ. Listen, I have had the pleasure and the joy of rejoicing with Canadian brothers in Christ, Japanese brothers and sisters in Christ, Ethiopian brothers and sisters in Christ, Nicaraguan brothers and sisters in Christ, Filipino brothers and sisters in Christ. Anybody, as long as we trust Christ, it is incredible the peace that we can have. But one other thing that I just wanted to tell you is waiting. It's out there in the future. For those in Christ, there's an incredible future that I'm going to call global peace. Global peace. Because if you will back up from what we just read in chapter 5 and you read in chapter 4 of Micah, you won't believe what it says in chapter 4 and verse 3. Speaking of Christ, it says, He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. That's great news, isn't it? I mean, I look forward to that kind of majestic peace. It's already in action. It's already operational, even right now. But sometimes we're just not giving the Lord a shot at bringing the peace that only He can bring. What am I trying to say? I'm trying to encourage you to do like Mary. You know, Mary, it says, treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. I want to encourage you, friend, this Christmas season. Don't stay so busy and so on the go and so stressed out, so driven that you don't take time to see the majesty of who Christ is. Hey, it's incredible. You know, Psalm 145 verse 5 says, On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. Take some time to think about the majesty of Christ's position. Take some time this Christmas season to ponder the majesty of his character. Contemplate the majesty of Christ's power. Reflect upon the majesty of his protection and meditate upon the majesty of his incredible peace. I'm telling you, no wonder the wise men said, we have come to worship him. If you'll take that time to do that, you know what's going to happen this Christmas? It'll be one of the most meaningful Christmases you've ever had. I think you will see him high and lifted up and you'll say, Lord, like the wise men, I've just come this Christmas to worship you. Thank you so much for joining us on uh, Growing in Grace. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Father, thank you so much for our friends who come and visit us at Growing in Grace. I pray that you have blessed them this Christmas. 
with the majesty. Help them see. Open their eyes that they could actually behold the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, it is beautifully displayed in the Christmas narratives and all across Scripture. It is just the majesty of who Christ is. So bless us, O Lord, as we go through our day today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, thank you so much for joining us today. I pray that God blessed you through this message. Merry Christmas. This is a ministry of First Baptist Church located at 1700 Milam Street, Columbus, Texas.